Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Generally speaking, I I went lighter and lighter as I continued my trip. And you know, when you start a big trip, there's so many unknown factors, and it it contributes to to you being more and more conservative. Like, welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In episode 27 of Bike Tour Adventures, I connect you with Nima Khalhali an Iranian-Canadian from Vancouver, BC, that recently spent five months traveling through Europe and North Africa. Having previously done some bike touring and also having done some hiking excursions, Nima brings a lot of experience to this conversation. In this episode, we talk about the European part of his bike tour, and he shares some tips and tricks that helped him cycle all the way to the top of Norway and to the bottom of Italy. I would also like to take a moment to thank my first Patreon member, David Robb. It really means so much to me that you decided to support this podcast. It's people like you that will make it possible for this podcast to continue growing. If you'd like to support the show, go to www.patreon.com slash bike tour adventures. Now, on to the show. Nima, welcome to the show. Hi, hello. Happy to be here. Yeah, I, I always find it's really interesting how the, the connections within the bike touring world occur or how they happen because like we're we're connected kind of through my buddy Adam Hugo. Um, I saw you messaged him and then I had started following your tour and then we got in contact and then uh, and then you also knew another guy I had on the show, Felipe. And yeah, it's just kind of weird. Yes. Uh, yes. Nowadays, the world is not very big, especially if you have, you have common interests. Yeah. Yes. Why don't you, uh, why don't you tell us about yourself? Yes. Uh, so my name is Nima. My last name is a little bit more difficult to pronounce. It's Hal Khadi. And uh, I'm 44 years old, and I'm from Iran originally. I moved to Vancouver in Canada about 10 years ago, and uh, I love bikes quite a bit. Yeah. How did you get into bike touring? So uh, I always was fascinated about traveling, and I I love backpacking trips and nature trips, hiking and uh, uh, traveling without a bike and uh but at the same time in parallel i was always very physically active like i my my family 
probably, and my friends would call me a hyperactive kid. I was mm -hmm. very active uh, playing games and doing different sports and all that sort of things. And I, I think my body really needs that like dosage of uh, everyday exercising. So when I was backpacking, I did uh, some like one month, a couple of months backpacking trips and mm -hmm. I wasn't feeling quite right because I wasn't getting my exercise. So that, my initial thinking was uh, how could I combine both traveling and getting my daily exercises. So uh, bike touring was a uh, was a ready to choose option for me. Okay, I heard that Vancouver has a really good cycling community. Um, can you tell us about it? Yes, the best thing about Vancouver is it's a relatively big city. It's now probably a metropolis, but at the same time, it's very much connected to the nature around it. There are beautiful mountains and. There are lakes and the scenery of British Columbia is uh, well known in Canada. Yeah. And also it's bike friendly. So people are more courteous with the cyclists. There are lots of bike lanes in town and, and you're usually within maximum 15 to 20 minutes from wherever you are to get out of city and be middle of a beautiful mountain road. So there are lots of uh, biking activity happening here. There's road cycling, mountain biking is big. I think downhill mountain biking or free riding started here near Vancouver oh, okay. in Squamish. And uh, so suspension bikes apparently were first, you know, started around Vancouver. So uh, yeah, it's a it's really big and uh, cool biking uh, community in Vancouver. It's so easy to get into biking here. What types of biking do you do in Vancouver? Do you do bike touring or do you do road biking or mountain biking or anything like that as well? Yeah, I have a few different types of bikes. Uh, I have six bicycles in total. <laughs> uh, so that probably says uh, a little bit about uh, my uh, interest in biking. I have a, a full suspension mountain bike that I feel a little bit guilty because I'm not using it as much as I want. Okay. Which is going for trails and there are lots of trails, mountain biking trails in forests of North Vancouver mountains. I have a, a touring bike, steel frame, classic touring bike with racks and everything. I have also a cyclocross bike, a lighter bike for riding off-road. Mm -hmm. I have a road bike. Uh, carbon frame light road bike. I used to do comp competitive road cycling. Oh, okay. Also, I have a folding bike, uh, Brompton, which I haven't really used it. Yeah. And a cruiser, which was my first bike here in Vancouver. A very cute cruiser, like a beach type bike, which I used to use for two years going everywhere. Uh, which one do so, you use mostly now? Now, mostly I use my cyclocross bike. Because I, I work as a bicycle courier. I do food delivery with bikes when I'm here. Uh, it's a flexible job that uh, I do when I'm, whenever I'm not traveling. And it's uh, it's like a all-around type of bicycle that has good gearing ratio and it can also go relatively fast. And, uh, so, and working in the courier services, is that paid decently? Because I know Vancouver is really expensive, so... Just wondering how, how, you, how you manage uh, yes. it month to month. It's, it's, uh, it's probably around, you make around 
twice as much as minimum wage. Oh, okay. Uh, and the best thing about it is its flexibility and uh, and also uh, your outdoor biking. Like if you love biking, that's uh, you enjoy your job. Yeah, yeah, that's the best part. Yeah. Prior to the most recent tour, did you have any other bike touring experience? Uh, yes, I was. Uh, I was in graduate school uh, until uh, uh, almost two years ago. Okay, that I finished my school and my resolution after finishing that school was to do a lot more fighting. So it was in summer of uh, 2018 mm-hmm. that I descended my thesis and I started right away with a four month trip, which wasn't actually a cycling trip, fighting trip. Okay. I, I, I traveled to India uh, because I was visiting some friends to do some mostly hiking trips. And we did hiking in Ladakh area and uh, I traveled to many nice nature places in, in northwestern part of India. Then I crossed the border to Nepal and stayed there for six weeks. And then it was uh, a one month of uh, traveling in, in Iran. Mostly I had to stay in Tehran and I hiked a lot mm-hmm. pretty much every day. The beautiful mountains, like up in like Damavan and all that Tehran. stuff. Yeah, you know that. And uh, yeah, and then I came back. Uh, after I came back, I had a trip to the U.S. to visit my 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 parents and family, which they live in in Vegas. And uh, I had a bike bike touring. Uh, I went with my uh, Kona bike. Uh, it's a cyclocross, and I was on bike packing setup. Mm-hmm. I biked to near San Diego through Mojave National Park oh. and California. It was in April last year. And it, it was absolutely beautiful uh, trip. I really enjoyed it a lot. And I biked back. And then I, after one month, I, I traveled to Cuba. I biked for about one month, uh, almost all of the island. I did a tour. I did like 2,200 kilometers, 20. 2200 kilometers mm-hmm. and also around 800 kilometers bus rides. So Cuba was uh, another bike touring trip that I did in uh, year 2019 last year. And uh, after a month and a half, I flew to Norway. So uh, two uh, relatively uh, decent bike trips before okay. starting. Europe All right. Europe and Africa. So for this Norway, uh, for the most recent bike tour, what, uh, and I guess Cuba is probably the same, but what kind of bike do you use for this tour? I was intending to, to go very light. Mm-hmm. It was my initial plan going with my cross bike, having just saddlebag, a saddlebag and, um, and a handlebar bag with no frame bag because my bike wasn't big enough okay. to accommodate that. And so I did fit everything, but everything was so, so uh, densely packed that I realized uh, if I w- I needed some extra food or uh, maybe more water, it would have been a challenge. And I, I decided to change my whole setup two days prior to flying. Okay. So I switched back over to my touring bike, which is a Trek 520 uh, classic touring yeah. bike with racks and uh, panniers, like two back to uh, two front and uh, a camping uh, dry bag and also a saddle uh, a handlebar bag 
So that was what I took with me to uh, to Norway. Okay. How did you adjust your gear and set up and stuff uh, throughout the tour? Did it change much after that? or? Uh, yes. Generally speaking, I, I went lighter and lighter as I continued my trip. And, you know, when you start a big trip, there's so many unknown factors and it, mm-hmm. it contributes to, to you being more and more conservative, like taking things for just-in-case situations. And I was, like, thinking going to like crossing the Arctic Circle and getting to northernmost part of Europe. I think I was taking too much warm clothing. So uh, quite a few things that probably I didn't use at all. Like maybe almost 50% of the weight I was carrying were not really used. Wow. And uh, so I had to carry them all the way to uh, northernmost part of Norway was North Cape and and then uh, I could finally ditch some of my stuff all the way coming back to center of European Budapest, which one of my friends from Vancouver came to visit me there and I sent them back and then later on in Morocco I as soon as I got to my first city I sent almost everything to my last destination and I was traveling just with my camping gear and uh, a little backpack. Yeah, I, th- I think I saw the backpack was strapped on top of the the rack, right? Uh, yes, in front rack. Do you um do you regret not sticking with your original plan of taking the cycle cross bag uh, bike with the backpacking setup? Uh, yes, I uh, I don't regret any decision, but uh, but I uh sort of uh you know uh grew into this realization that. Less is more again, so mm-hmm. I appreciate it more when I do it. So uh, doing that big trip made me again learn what were the absolute essentials mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for the long trip. So tell me, what are the three things in your bags that you can't live without? Oh, yeah, that's that's easy. Uh, like probably the most important thing that I have, it's actually my my camping collection gear is my air mattress mm-hmm. and it's absolutely amazing when you're camping on any sort of terrain could be rough it could be rocky and uh, you pump up your thick air mattress and you you sleep comfortably and and it's warm another thing will be like initially when i was carrying more and more electronics, and I ditched more and more of my electronics. All of them, any piece of electronic comes with its charger and, yeah. and uh, you know, the plugins and everything, and you have to find time and places to charge them. So I ditched all my electronics, including my SLR camera. I even uh, sent back my GoPro, and I, I bought a relatively decent phone. It's a phone that comes with an inbuilt pen, and I have everything in this phone. Okay. So my notes, my photos, even my ebooks, my Kindle, so and my podcast that I really love. Mm-hmm. So my phone is is something that I really find it useful and probably essential. And the last thing will be my clean uh, pajamas for for sleeping at night. It made me feel. Right, I'm at home, 
So you don't have the luxury of uh, taking a shower every day, but mm-hmm. like I, I, I carry uh, like moist uh, tissues and clean and wipe my body. And I, as soon as I get into my clean pajamas, I, I feel right at home. My <laughs> awesome. Tent, That's great. All right, let's move on to the tour and let's talk about this. Yeah, this five months. Was it five months long you did your tour? A little bit less than five months in less. total. Yeah, like uh, five days less, probably. And you were originally planning to cycle to Iran. What happened for you to decide to not go to Iran? Okay, yeah. the Actually, the original plan was not cycling to Iran. It was oh, okay. a second plan. Ah. So the original plan was... Uh, like flying to Oslo in Norway and cycle to Nordcap, which I hadn't worked out any details. I, I didn't know how I was going to get to Nordcap. But uh, anyhow, uh, so I was thinking maybe doing uh, around 100 miles or 160 kilometers per day because initially I was thinking going very light and fast. And then I changed my bike and I, I was heavier not as much aerodynamic and also i realized i couldn't just pass and leave behind some of the places i was to i wanted to spend more time yeah so my average dropped to 100 kilometers per day and uh which i was uh enjoying every every day and every uh, little moment of it and uh, i wasn't after after uh few days i wasn't thinking much about my any deadline or anything so uh i i made it to north cap in in about one one month and that was close to end of uh summer which was uh in uh near september and what was it like cycling in norway in the summer uh it was uh initially very hot actually first day out of oslo it was 33 degrees centigrade and I used almost six or seven liters of water. I was really glad that I had my water filters with me. That was probably the only day I really used my water filters because I I ended up in some uh, gravel uh, uh, rural roads and there was no water and it was very hot and okay. I had to filter some water from lakes, which they were not very clean. Uh, they were like algae and stuff like okay. that. And, uh, and But to answer... The bigger picture of my yeah. plan. So my initial plan was to cycle to to Nordcap and cycle all the way back through Finland, hop over to to the Baltics and uh, cycle all the way south to Greece and uh, and cross the, uh, the uh, Atlantic uh, sorry Adriatic uh, Sea to Italy and cycle north again and. Uh, get to the Alps and do a little bit of hiking with with some friends, and then uh, continue on to France and finish my trip in France. Oh, okay. So this was uh, my first plan, and uh, so but second one uh, was by the time I was uh, in Poland. Maybe as our interview goes on, I can elaborate mm-hmm. a little bit more what happened. So this didn't happen. And uh, to answer your question, why I didn't go to Iran was, uh, so that was like plan B. I was in, in Poland. And then uh, by the time I was in Poland, I realized I had a long way. I had another 10,000 kilometers to reach my final destination was southeastern most part of Iran. And, and then in, 
uh, at some point i i realized it was a long way to go and also i couldn't really leave behind the balkans and mm. i was so so intrigued and so interested to see them better and i just kept going southward i still had this idea of going to iran until probably uh, i was in serbia in belgrade and uh, that was the point that i made up my mind i decided to keep going south because i also was getting closer and closer uh, to winter and staying near mediterranean coastline was the best place probably to be uh, okay. in november and december so uh so the second plan to cycle to iran changed again and i i carried on southward towards greece and then uh, it was africa and to end of my trip i stayed in warmer places awesome i love it love it um so let's talk about norway sorry we'll jump back a bit because i know you kind of touching on a lot of different places but sure. uh yeah so you were in norway for like about a month yeah to get to north cape and then you 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 flew um you flew to poland but i mean how do you how did you manage to keep the costs down in norway because it's notoriously expensive there yeah it's uh i remember uh first day i was in Oslo. i went grocery shopping and i paid like twice as much as i pay in vancouver which is not a very cheap city anyway and i was like a little bit scared like uh, everything was very very expensive but uh you know as days uh, went uh, went on i i learned more and more from where to shop and it's uh, something probably normal i know much better how to shop when i live in my own city mm-hmm. and uh, i found you know places uh, that could save and uh, spend less so this was for first uh, probably 10 days and then i kept hearing from other uh, fellow cycle tours and and some other friends and also some some uh, Facebook pages, people were giving recommendations about, they said, you should check out the dumpsters of uh, big supermarkets. They're like treasures. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit uh, hesitant and not quite confident what was going on until I tried once. I was like, oh, so they look not really bad, like the food in the dumpsters. And and I, I that started there. And I I can tell after probably uh, two weeks I didn't spend anything on food. <laughs> there was so much good food in their dumpsters, and I learned what what was the right time to do it, where was the best place to do it, and uh, and the food in dumpsters are perfectly fine, and they're all very clean and and shrink wrap and sealed and and. Uh, so I, I had the best food of my trip during the days I was dumpster diving. Amazing. Um, tell me, what, yeah. what is the best time to dumpster dive and what are the tricks and tricks of the trade? Yes, here comes the trick, which I learned from some really good friends, including my friend Payman, if you know him, he is now in Africa. He, he, he is from Finland, originally from Iran. Okay. But he, he, he taught me some tricks of uh, how to dumpster dive in Scandinavian countries. So you you go firstly Sundays. Sundays is where all the food is in the dumpster, dumpsters, and also all the grocery stores are closed. So there's no pressure. You're not 
messing with anybody. It's, uh, uh, I have to say dumpster diving is, is very much tolerated and maybe even appreciated in Scandinavian countries because people have more environmentally you know, conscious, probably, mindsets mm-hmm. compared to other places. So it's, uh, it's not something of uh, something to feel much of pressure to do it. Okay. So uh, Sundays uh, are the best time to do it. You need to have extra space. That was the place that I really could use my extra uh, capacity for carrying stuff. So I would fill up all my uh, big kayaking bag, which is uh, my uh, camping uh, dry bag with lots of food uh, on Sundays for the rest of the week. And uh, also smaller towns are uh, much easier to access uh, food because okay. dumpsters are, are smaller and they're left open. Mostly, they don't lock them. So uh, Sundays, smaller towns, and uh, big, uh, relatively big uh, supermarket chains. Yeah, is the trick. Uh, that's great. And um, how are the drivers in Norway? And were the people welcoming, like quite welcoming, to bike tours, or were they just oh more standoffish? I, in one word, uh, Norway is a land of happy people. And happy people treat other people well, in my opinion. Mm. And drivers were very, very, very courteous and and careful. And I never really felt, uh, uh, you know, in in risk of uh, being uh, in an accident yeah. induced by by drivers. Uh, except uh, Norway doesn't have a really uh, huge network of roads, so sometimes your choices for for roads are limited, especially I was doing uh, a route that was not the, the typical bike touring route, okay. which is your Velo one. So I was doing some central parts of Norway. And at some point, uh, the only road that I had ahead of me was this so-called highway. It's not very wide. It's just a two-lane road, one lane for each way. Okay. And zero shoulder. And it's very hilly and mountainous and they're like, all sorts of cars and trucks uh, are there and they don't see you when you're around the corner. So there was one day I, w- I found myself in a really, really bad situation. And then I sat down and I, I planned a whole route on village roads and gravel roads, which were really fantastic. Uh, they're very hilly, but uh, gravel in Norway is almost as good as a uh, paved road. I don't know. They have really good uh, I would say road uh, construction equipment. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they maintain them really well, and they're very smooth, and uh, and they're they were fantastic. So I managed to stay away from that E6 highway that runs all the way from Oslo to north uh, to uh, close to Northgate, Northgate that uh, mm-hmm. uh, connects to another highway. Okay. Uh, um, other than uh, that day, I was perfectly uh, fine. No problem. And the people in general, like when you're interacting in towns and stuff? People in Norway are very, very uh, generous, very kind, and very interesting to talk to. Uh, people are very educated and uh, very uh, you know, uh, knowledgeable about everything. I had very good experience with interacting with local people. I was hosted uh, with three very kind people in Norway for six 
six nights and I, I experienced uh, what is it like uh, uh, to be a Norwegian yeah, uh, home and uh, hospitality. And uh, on the road, I would meet people. Sometimes they would just come forward and talk to me and we had interesting conversations. And uh, yeah, wonderful experience. Good. What were some of the challenges of riding in Norway? Other than that Highway 6. Oh, uh, challenges were probably the like physical challenge, which I enjoyed because you take your time and do whatever you can do. Where the hilly sections of Norway, uh, the central road is like where, where the mountains are. Okay. And uh, yeah, I had some harder, more challenging days, but generally I was feeling in good shape and I didn't even have a single rest day all the way to, to North Cape. Oh, wow. Usually I rest if I feel I need it, but I, I was feeling really, uh, really good in, for the whole trip to get to North Cape. Weather was all right in Norway. Generally, I, after a few very hot days, it was really nice, nice weather. And uh, I had almost no rain all the way to North Cape, oh, you're which was something very unusual. Except one single day that I, I did the uh, highest pass of Norway, which you go to around 1400, 1500 meters of elevation. And as soon as I got, I was approaching to the top, the heavens opened up and it was hailing and raining and the headwind hitting my face. And uh, but uh, luckily, after a couple of hours, and I kept going, and I and I kept warm. I was drenched, yeah, uh, to my bones. And I found a sort of uh, uh, shelter or like a resting area mm-hmm. on top of the pass, and they had heaters and. And I, I stayed there for a couple of hours and dried everything and, uh, and I kept going and, and then it was sunny again. Oh, nice. Uh, all the way to, to North Cape. What was it like cycling through their, their white nights type season? I mean, in Russia, we called it, it's called white nights. So I don't know what they call it in Scandinavia, but where, you know, basically 24 hours a day of sunshine kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, by the time I was, uh, in Norway and Northern, uh, no, uh, northern parts of Norway, I, I had already passed uh, the what's so-called uh, midnight sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that ends, uh, depending on how north you are, but from uh, a specific day in summer, the, the midnight sun is not there anymore. Uh, okay, yeah, so, well, June 21st is the, the longest day, so then it's always getting shorter from there, right? A little bit. Uh, correct, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, but however, it was, uh, you know, uh, for most of the, the night, maybe I had like quite dark, uh, it was quite dark just for, for two, three hours mm-hmm. and the rest of it, like it was not totally dark, probably till 2 AM till or one thirty to maybe 4 AM. And I love biking, you know, uh, after 10 p.m., I would usually camp uh, by around 10.30 or 11 p.m. because the lights and the sceneries were just unbelievable. Wow. It was so beautiful. And, and also, it was much less traffic because people stopped uh, driving after uh, 9 or 10 p.m. And everything 
looked uh, very, very special because of uh, uh, light angles and, uh, and color contrast. So it was my favorite time of biking during the day was uh, after 9 p.m. Okay. Till 10 or 11. And uh, how did it feel when you reached North Cape? Was it where you think, like, was it like an elated feeling or were you like, ah, shit, now I have to cycle all the way back down to, to the south? Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magnin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Uh, honestly, uh, by the time I, I got to no- North Cape, uh, I was just so relaxed and so happy that it wasn't like a super amazing moment for me. It was like a moment of peace and quiet. And uh, I was happy. It was the last day was very, very hard. Like uh, there's this little beautiful town called Moningswagen, if I pronounce it the right way. That is, it was just 40 or 45 kilometers to North Cape. And I was like, this is an easy day. I just go and come back. But I hadn't really checked the elevation profile. And it was constantly going two, 300 meters up, super steep down, up, down. I think it would be, by the end of the day, close to 2,000 meters of elevation gain. Really? It was very, very hard. Yeah, it was uh, one of the most challenging days. Uh, probably... Uh, Part of the reason was I was expecting something very easy. So it was very physically challenging. Uh, and uh, uh, by the time I got to, I finally saw that, you know, that the sort of globe uh, statue mm-hmm. is sign of end of the road. I was very happy, but at the same time, very, uh, very settled and uh, peaceful. Uh, but I knew in the back of my head that it was cold like four degrees three degrees and windy uh, but i knew i had to do all these ups and downs to get back to morning's wagon which i had a, a ferry from there to go to uh Tromso further south okay which i have kicked uh, explains uh, uh the rest of my my route which was the place i wanted to fly to poland uh yes uh uh, yeah, I knew I wasn't going to cycle all the way through Finland or uh, rainy uh, forest. So there was no no big fear of that for me. Okay. Uh, when did you decide to not cycle back down or had this already been decided a while before? Uh, 
when i was in tromso uh so what, one of the things i love about traveling and when you're you really uh are spontaneous is all those little coincidences and which i don't call them anymore a coincidence i was in this campground with two other friends that we had cycle a couple of days together okay. which we just found each other on the road and at one moment uh, a girl came into the kitchen of the campground and i was still thinking what to do and she was from yeah czech republic and she was biking with her boyfriend and she came in and i said i i showed her I said hey look there's like free food here and you know the kind of stuff that you need and in just two minutes she told me you know what you should you can get a really cheap flight from uh, Gdan- uh, from here to gdansk in poland and uh, it's a, it's it was visor yeah the airliner and and then she left and i just checked i was like you know sometimes you have few options and mm-hmm. you think too much and you're exhausted and like in two minutes i bought the tickets because i just wanted to be over with thinking what to do so in tromso and i i was still on my way to to north cape mm-hmm. at uh, another week to get there was the point that i decided to uh, get to north of poland that which would uh, i would skip the the baltics uh, countries mm-hmm. of uh, latvia estonia and uh, and uh, Estonia Lithuania uh, yeah Lithuania yeah yeah and partly because I wanted to do it before but I heard the roads are not very good and you have to stay on some uh motorways which are very busy okay. but probably I would have found uh, figured out better route but I flew to Gdansk to escape uh, winter and uh, rain basically get and what was Gdansk like? So let's let's talk about the Eastern European part of the tour. What was uh, Gdansk? Oh, like? Gdansk was like a fairy tale uh, town. This is what I've it heard. It was from unbelievable. I remember first night. First night when I got to Gdansk, uh, part of the reason the flight was very cheap, the timing was horrible. So I got there like two a.m. and I got my bag together, uh, put back, put it back together by probably three a.m. So I just bike out and I asked this question on bicycle touring page in Facebook and uh, some local people, oh, I met with some people on warm showers and they told me, they, uh, a very super friendly local cyclist, mm-hmm. he sent me a location. He said, you can't go and, and camp in the middle of this forest. Nobody is going to find you. <laughs> oh, cool. So it's still camping. So I camped there middle of a very, very uh, wild forest, like she was interesting because it was so near uh, you know residential areas and next day i went and checked into a hostel and uh, then i went out and visited this old part part of Gdansk, and it was like walt disney fairy tale it was beautiful i felt like i was uh, dreaming where i was high really yeah yeah absolutely beautiful like uh, I don't know exactly what era era of uh, you know architecture there were, mm-hmm. like, like probably medieval uh, churches and uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, old town. Yeah, I've had quite a few friends go yeah. there, and they said it was phenomenal. And like I've been to Krakow, and it's very beautiful, but there's a lot of tourists there, so I, I kind of feel like Gdansk probably has yeah. a little bit less tourists. Yes, it's uh, it's less touristy. 
than Krakow, and uh, it's uh, smaller, mm-hmm. but everything is there. And I had no no expectation, or I had no no idea about Gdansk. To me, it was just a weird name that uh, mm-hmm. I would fly there. And after I bought the ticket, uh, probably a day before I started researching what's going on in Gdansk. But by the time I was there, uh, it was interesting because I got there. Uh, I think I was there in September first, and next day was the day that Second World War. World War had started uh, eight years prior to that day, oh, okay. and it started actually in Gdansk. So I was somewhere that they had a sort of uh, ceremony mm-hmm. the day after, but the time of that ceremony was like 4 a.m. because that was exactly when the, okay. the first uh, uh, bombardment happened mm-hmm. there, apparently. And it was raining, so I didn't go. But it was a very special uh, moment uh, for history of Second World War, and there was war museum and, you know, that kind of history also present. And I've noticed uh, through your posts that you 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 have a deep respect or, or interest in World War II. I, I noticed that you quite a few posts where you talk about different places that their effects of war and stuff, and not just World War II, but maybe you can tell us about your tour through Poland, um, as well as including, uh, I heard you had an accident in there, and uh, also you went to Auschwitz. So how did all this play out, and what were your feelings? Uh, yes, uh, I didn't really realize until I was in Europe uh, how much of a visible history of Second World War still lingers in, in Europe, including Norway, like all the way to North Cape. Mm-hmm. I passed through cities that people had stories of, uh, like by the time Russians started coming and pushing back Nazis uh, from north of Norway, Nazis were setting fire on all the cities. They were burning everything on their way south. So uh, there was certainly uh, some moving stories about Norway. And when I was in Poland, Poland is probably the country that was being most affected Massively, and destroyed yeah. by Second World War. Mm. Gdansk wasn't as much uh, destroyed as some other places in in Poland because Gdansk was, before Second World War, is mostly a German city. So the map of Europe changed quite a bit after yeah. Second World War. So it was uh, controlled by Nazis at the time. So that was a good thing that those uh, old buildings weren't destroyed. But apparently, I I didn't go to Warsaw, but I read almost 90% of Warsaw was totally destroyed in Second World War. It, it was pretty bad. I remember being in Warsaw, and you went to a, I went to a, um, a Jewish cemetery there, and all the gravestones were built into the walls around the cemetery. And when I asked, I read one of the things about it, and it said because the Nazis came in, they took all the gravestones from the ground and used them to pave the roads. And then after the war, they, they picked them all back up, but they, they didn't know where they belonged. So they just put them into the walls as a sign of respect. And that's pretty messed up. Yes. Yeah, so uh, by the time I cycled south to Krakow, Krakow has a big you know war history, although mm-hmm. uh, fortunately it wasn't destroyed because apparently Krakow is also a German type of uh, city which was designed, re- rebuilt and restored in, if I remember it right, around in the 15th or 16th century. Mm-hmm. And the architect was German. It looks like a old German city. So because of that reason, uh, Nazis or Hitler 
they considered as a German treasure. So okay. and they they surrendered and they even bombard Krakow. And uh, but there was a sad history of uh, uh, because there was there was a big Jewish population in Krakow mm-hmm. and a lot of things happened in Krakow. Like many Jewish people were killed and uh, massacred. And there was a big genocide happening, yeah. and which uh, and Auschwitz is uh, is uh, near Krakow. So close. Around. Yeah. So a uh, big war history, sad war war history near Krakow as well. Mm-hmm. You got hit by a car at some point in Poland, right? Oh, uh, yes. That was... <laughs> yes, I was still in my Norway mode. And I, <laughs> by the time I left Gdansk, uh, I, I headed south. And I just met a local cyclist and, uh, outside the grocery store. And he was super friendly, nice guy. He, was, he had two panniers in the back, writer set up. And, and he spoke... Uh, very good English and and then he said I'm going this way and you were like more or less in the same direction we decided to go together and then we were in this very very uh, quiet rural beautiful road through some farms and Mm -hmm. we were like riding uh, in parallel and chatting and it was like a lot of space for other cars to pass and it's not really a busy road and all of a sudden this car came passing extremely fast and uh and while he was passing he was honking like very loudly and kind mm-hmm. of swerved like cutting in to us and it was so abrupt that he freaked out i don't know if he hit me or not but it was like this adrenaline rush that i swerved and hit the back of uh, my polish friend's bike and we were going like 25 30 kilometers an hour, and uh-huh. I crashed on the ground and I was dragged like for 10 meters. <laughs> yeah, like magically. Like uh, dragged or you slid for 10 meters? Yeah, I was like rolling. Oh, and, okay. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, and like everything was uh, scattered around, like two of my panniers, and I was like, oh, what happened? It usually takes you like few, uh, maybe seconds before you, like, you realize where you are and what's going on and, and assess the damage and, uh, and I was like, probably my panniers are uh, broken or um, oh, let's broken. see what's going on. And like, luckily, uh, I was fine. I'd like accept some bruises. And luckily, I didn't hit my head anywhere. And I was not wearing a helmet at the time. So mm. I ditched my helmet in Norway because I was feeling so safe. And uh, except some, uh, I have a little bit of... Uh, you know, crack in my uh, brake lever, everything was fine. And, but it was a very good wake up call for me for the rest of uh, my ride. He told me, you're not in Norway anymore. Yeah. Like, uh, it, so drivers were a bit crazy, you know, uh, mostly in just northern part of Poland for a reason I don't know. Maybe I was in the wrong, uh, um, wrong road or something after I, split with my Polish friend, I was like, drivers were still extremely uh, scary. Like, they would pass you, like, 100 kilometers an hour in a very, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, minor road. So, I was uh, very, very uh, cautious, like, around me, what's going on. And but, uh, as I I kept going south, maybe I was acclimatizing better with what was going on. But Back things improved. Yes, also, I think the drivers improved. 
scariest part was northern part of Poland. Okay. Um, it got better. Can I ask you about your route through Eastern Europe? And I mean, you went from Eastern Europe down into um, the Balkans as well, which is awesome because I, I really want to go there. I have friends from that area and they have a really rich history as well and, and quite a varied history and, and a sad history as well because of war once again. Um, can you talk us through your routes and what were some of the best parts and some of the problems along the way? From Gdansk, I pretty much went straight southward, no east or west. It was like going straight south, which I passed through Krakow, and then I, I like near a Slovakian border, mm-hmm. there's this uh, spectacular mountain called Tatras Mountain. Okay. And uh, so you start climbing up. So it was a little bit boring for me until I got to Tatras Mountain because it was all flat in Poland. And it was uh, not very fun because I had headwind all the way going south. So it was like climbing mountains, but with no, you know, beautiful sceneries of the mount- of mountains, but spending more energy uh, because of headwind. Yeah. So it wasn't my favorite part till getting to Tatras Mountains and it became absolutely beautiful. So I got to this little town called Zakopani. I stayed in a hostel called Mountain Bike Hostel. And oh, cool. I like the name. And, and then I met the owner of the hostel. Is It's called Mountain Bike Hostel. I really recommend it. And uh, he was really, really cool guy. And it was so casual that I went inside and chose my room. I, nobody was there until we met for dinner after the owner. He was like a young guy, probably his early 30s, a mountain biker. Yeah. And Zakopani uh, is actually, in, it's in Poland, right? Yes. Yeah. Still in Poland. And then after Zakopani, I I continued, you know, going around basically Tatram, Tatras Mountains. Yeah. Because they're super huge mountains to Slovakia and then uh, you go up, up and then you cross over a bridge and then you're in Slovakia. Okay. Uh, sorry, then, I, didn't, I didn't want to interrupt your story about the guy. So if you're, you can, you can definitely finish that story. No, it was a beautiful place. So uh, just leave it there. I enjoyed it. Uh, nice conversations and everything. And Slovakia was like uh, again, Tatras Mountains in Slovakia and Park was absolutely beautiful. And I, I at some point I started going downhill to this valley, and it was like this euphoric downhill ride, and like beautiful uh, grasslands and like all uh, uh, cattle, like sheep, okay. and it was beautiful. It was like like probably Switzerland, something similar to to what you might expect. You know, from Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And uh, Slovakia was not very big. I crossed to Slovakia just in a, in two days, uh, crossed over to Hungary, and I continued still southward all the way to Budapest. And uh, the route, my route continued to, to former Yugoslavian countries mm-hmm. until I made my way to, to Adriatic coastline, which I, I reunited with my Italian friends. The buddy of mine that we like traveling together, he joined me in split in Croatia and we continued along the more or less Adriatic coastline all the way to Greece in uh, Igomenica. And then my friend left, uh, got a boat back to Italy and I continued uh, to Patras and, and Athens. 
Okay. And did you, um, which, which of the Balkan states did you visit? You were in Serbia, I think, a little bit. I visited first Hungary. Mm-hmm. So after Hungary, I, uh, so before crossing over the border to Croatia, I just came across two random cyclists, which I had not seen anyone until that point, all the way from Poland. It was like middle of the road. I saw two cyclotourists, a boy and girl, going like fighting a headwind. And they were like fighting so hard, their heads down, they didn't see me. I was like right on the side of the road. And then I jumped on my bike and carried on and said, hey, how's it going? And then then we stopped, started chatting. So it was uh, uh, two uh, German cyclists, a couple, uh, Lucas and uh, Kimberly. Okay. And then he, he said, it was like not... Uh, it was near sunset time, maybe in a couple of hours. I said, hey, uh, we, we said, let's uh, camp together uh, uh, next to Danube River. So, uh, so we were together. I, I give you the, the whole route first, and then I get more into details. But uh, so we carried on together to Croatia, and we hopped over back and forth to uh, Serbia, over Danube River a couple of times between Croatia and Serbia. Uh, we want to visit some uh, post-war uh, remnants of uh, Bosnian war. Yeah, and uh, and then uh, then we we were we went all the way together to Belgrade, and after Belgrade, that's where Balkans started. I continued. I headed for Sarajevo in Bosnia, okay. and from Sarajevo, I continued. Uh, pretty much in the wrong direction if I wanted to go to Iran because I was going exactly west. To meet your friend, and, right? And, yeah, to meet my friend in Split in Croatia. Mm-hmm. And on my way, I also uh, visited uh, Mostar, which is a very interesting city. I had no idea until a friend of mine, uh, she is uh, from France, I knew from Vancouver, she messaged me, she said, I live in Mostar, uh, come and stay with me if you want. And uh, so I visited my friend. I stayed in Mostar for a couple of days. It was a beautiful city. I, I was so happy that I also saw that city with with fat history of uh, Bosnian war. Okay. Uh, it's everywhere in that area. And then to Split, uh, that's where uh, we started uh, uh, riding southward uh, on Adriatic uh, coastline. And continued onward after Croatia, we got into Montenegro. And from Montenegro, we hopped over to, we went down the mountains to Albania, to Flatland again after a while. And we did, we cycled all the way from north to southernmost part of Albania to Igomenica in Greece. And which after Greece, uh, the rest of my trip unfolds. Awesome. Great. Of Italy. Yeah. Yeah. You spent a little bit of time in Greece and Italy. I'm assuming that it all of a sudden became much more expensive to tour compared to Eastern Europe in general. Uh, yes, exactly. So, you know, uh, Croatia, probably you can say Croatia is two really different countries. So I was in Croatia in two different, you know, times and sections. The mm-hmm. northern part is not the touristy section and it was similar to to Poland and uh, okay. uh, some rural parts of Serbia, so it was it was uh, inexpensive, if not cheap. Uh, but uh, as soon as you get to Croatian uh, coastline of Adriatic, it's extremely touristy, like the most touristy place that I had been 
by that time was Split and even more Dubrovnik is like there are like four or five cruises daily, you know, come mm. to the city. So many tourists it was hard to watch. It's like these beautiful castles, they're really gorgeous, but you don't really see much because you're you just see people. So it wasn't super fun. And it was expensive. Very, very expensive. Like in one case, just to go walk over a castle wall, the walls around the city, I remember it was 27 euros. No. Yes, like 40 Canadian dollars just to walk on a wall. So you didn't do it. <laughs> but to give you a sort of a, a taste of how expensive that section was, then Montenegro, it was quite a developed country, counter to our initial expectation. Montenegro is also touristy. It's beautiful. Montenegro means Black Mountain in Italian. Mm -hmm. So it's all mountains and it's beautiful for, for biking, especially when you see the coastline on, on your right side and mountains on the other side. You really enjoyed it. It wasn't quite cheap uh, either, but as soon as we got to Albania, it was bam, like a totally different world. It was like somewhere between Europe and India. Like all of a sudden, everything changed, traffic regulation, you would see cars coming up with directions and the motorcycles and everything. Like it was so, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But it was so damn interesting. Like me and Julia, we couldn't stop smiling as soon as we got to Albania. Like, oh man, let's stay here. This is like a big hippie country. And it was very, very cheap in Albania. Everything was three times cheaper than than uh, that part, uh, uh -huh. the other parts of uh, Croatia and Montenegro. And people are very interesting, very, very friendly, and would just come forward and talk to you. They would jump and give you high fives, fives when you were riding on the side of the road. Kids were so playful and very, very alive uh, country. But again, after, as soon as we got to uh, Greece, everything became three times more expensive, yeah. if not more. It was, especially if you're anywhere near anything related to tourism, any, you know, uh, old uh, archaeological site or port or mm -hmm. somewhere with any, anything interesting, things were extremely expensive, like more expensive than Italy. Okay. Uh, like I paid like two euro, two euros fifty for single shot espresso. So it's uh, in Italy I paid eighty cents okay. out of Italy. Big difference. But uh, if you were away from uh, those touristy areas, it was not an expensive country. But later I I learned uh, where to shop and and where to eat, and uh, especially when I was in Athens. And for people that know. Uh, where to shop locals it's not very expensive country okay. but if you don't know it's uh, not cheap and if you're anywhere touristy yeah yes so how much time did you spend in greece and then how much time did you spend in italy and i didn't really know and after julio my friend left it was like you know before we were like discussing all the plans together on a daily basis so i all of a sudden i knew i didn't really know what i was going to do because I was not thinking about it uh, or discussing it. So 
I carried on to Patras and on my way, I want to visit. Uh, oh, I had to fix my bicycle because uh, my middle ring, front mm-hmm. ring was totally worn out. And we tried to fix it in, in Albania somewhere. And I ended up being ripped off. Like they, somebody charged me 70 euros and he didn't fix it finally. And, and they didn't have the components. And in uh, Igomenitsa, I had to stay a couple of days more for that part to, to arrive. I found a very good bike shop there and I ordered it online. He knew what he was doing. And so I went to Corfu Island, which was absolutely beautiful. Corfu mm-hmm. City is very, very interesting place. Uh, very touristy, but I, I was happy I visited it. And then uh, I, after three, four days staying in that uh, Igomenitsa uh, area, I, I started cycling south towards Patras, uh, through beautiful, very, very hilly mountains, coastline of uh, Adriatic Sea. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I received a message from a relative of mine that he lives in Athens. And uh, also I have a, a, this relative of mine, he's, he lives in a refugee camp in Athens. Oh. So to me, it was, uh, it was nobody had visited him for quite a while. We're, we were not very close, you know, when I was... Uh, we were like before I left Iran. We don't really know each other, but I was like, I felt like you know, sort of responsible for visiting somebody that hadn't seen any anybody, you know, uh, of yeah. his relatives. And at the same time, I I was very intrigued and interested to go and see a refugee camp. So I biked. Uh, I decided to go again in the opposite direction because Athens is uh, going east. And I want to continue uh, south and uh, uh, and east. Uh, I want to get back to Italy with a boat. So I biked to Athens. And in Athens, I stayed four days and nights in that refugee camp. And it was a very interesting experience. I visited another friend of mine that was my roommate back in Vancouver. He's from Athens. And um, so long story short, I stayed two weeks, quite a bit more than what I I was planning initially mm-hmm. to stay, and because um, I overall I had 90 days Schengen uh, visa in, uh, or a staying uh, permit, mm-hmm. and uh, I, it was running out, so I didn't have enough time. I was spending time from Italy, just yeah. staying in Athens, and uh, so I didn't bike there. And I was there, I was also recovering and just uh, seeing what was going on and. Then two weeks in uh, Greece before I got a bus back to Patras to catch my boat uh, to Brindisi in Italy, south of Italy. In the south, yeah? Yes. So after Brindisi, I carried on biking. And as soon as I got to Italy, everything was extremely interesting in terms of archaeology. And food was fantastic. I had stress of that. Never had in my life. I couldn't even imagine oh, yeah. this would be so good. And people were so so sociable and so friendly, so you know, uh, so uh, interested and uh, welcoming. I really, really loved Italy, and uh, I carried on to visit some nice places like uh, this place called Matera, mm-hmm. which is a very, very old city. Uh, it was. Uh, an amazing uh, place, yes. And 
And I carried on. At some point, I had to catch a train. Uh, well, I remember yeah, following you. You were, you were running out of days, right? And you're like, I got to get out of this country. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I was running out of um, my remaining 90 days uh, fast. And I had already bought a ticket from Palermo to Tunis, in, which is the capital of Tunisia. And uh, so I, at some point, I needed to get into a, a bus or train. And I it was... I realized it was more complicated than I was hoping. And a lot of buses wouldn't accept the bicycle. And mm. and I had to bike very fast to get to a certain station and get a re- regional uh, train. And finally, I made it to Palermo in time, and uh, which I missed my boat. <laughs> That's another story. That sucks. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, yes, when I was in Italy, uh, it was everywhere was very special. Even the smallest, tiniest house, it had a beautiful castle in the middle. Like everything was very, very old and stunning for me. It was a like a country paved with with history and museums and uh, interesting things. Mm-hmm. And I made it to Palermo, so I had to change uh, my train, hop into a ferry and get another train and got to Palermo. And Palermo was absolutely fascinating. And I was stunned by uh, how interesting this city is. It's very diverse in culture and history. Pe- people from all over the world have been in Palermo. Arabs, Ottomans, uh, oh, yeah. Spanish people, Italians, Greek people. It's a mixture of all these cultures and you can find food from all over those uh, cultures. And the uh, architecture in uh, Palermo and uh, the old sites are fascinating. People are very, very warm and friendly and food is the best in Sicily. According to my friend Giulio, he's from the north, yeah. he's from Como. He told me one day, I was talking about Italian food and where do they come from? He told me, everything good in Italy comes from South. All the good food. So pizza, pasta, ice cream, he said, they're all from South. I don't know uh, how, to what extent he is right, but he's not biased because he is from North. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, everything was amazing in Sicily. I absolutely love Palermo. And then... I had a ferry to catch and it was uh, 2 a.m. moving Palermo for, for Tunis. And I got there a little bit too late and I missed the boat. <laughs> I was uh, a little bit frustrated at the beginning, but I always remind myself everything happens for a reason. So don't fight. Yeah. So I had to go back to my hostel. The next boat was four days after. So it was great because I had four more days to explore Sicily. So and you were okay with that? Uh, you were okay like with your visa still? Yes, you know, I I still had around 10 more days. So I was thinking from Tunisia, maybe I get a boat, go to to, uh, Almeria in uh, Spain and bike a little bit in Spain and Portugal and then getting a flight from somewhere in Portugal. But since I I spent four more days, I had like five more days left, including ferry ride. And I I just uh, skipped that part, but I think it was a good thing because... Sicily was amazing. Like I didn't have any day that wasn't really awe-inspiring in mm. Sicily. So I 
it was a, I spent another two, three days. I traveled to these amazing volcanoes, like biggest volcano in Europe yeah. called Mount Etna. Oh yeah. I biked to, to its parking lot and the views were just unreal. And then I, I also got a train to uh, Syracuse, which was one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. It's I, I even cannot explain how amazing this really? place was. And yes, and then another train back to Palermo stayed in this amazing music uh, type of uh, hostel that they were like, the whole hostel was filled with uh, musical instruments and everybody could take whatever they wanted and play. And they were like some amazing musicians, like uh, people who play really good music they come to that hostel oh, neat. it was like an ongoing party live music every night and a big part of the day so and i met very very interesting people made amazing friends that you're still in touch some uh, bicycle tours that uh, from argentina that uh, we made plans to visit and travel together with bicycle and uh, so i left the uh, Sicily with uh, amazing memories. That's of, fantastic. Uh, south of Italy. Do you carry a bike lock with you when you're going so that uh, if, you're, if you're checking out something, you can lock up your bike? Or what do you do? I did have a lock, a U-lock, but I probably used it just twice. Once in Oslo when mm-hmm. I was in downtown. They have a you know bike theft problem. Another time when I was in Athens. But uh, other than that, I have a very light... Uh, you know, a very light uh, combination lock type of bike that you use in airports okay. to, to just lock the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, your suitcase. And that's what I use uh, use wherever else I was. In Norway, I probably after also I didn't lock my bike at all. Even when I was in that campground, I didn't uh, lock my bike going outside. But uh, but otherwise, when I go shopping, I I would just use that little wire kind of combination mm-hmm. like it's very easy to cut it if somebody is really wants deep, it, yeah. they can but uh, i it never happened and usually thieves don't go for a very heavy bike that they can't barely move it and they don't know yeah. how to take off the panniers yeah. so excellent all right that ends the european leg of nima's tour we have to take a pause and finish this off another day just due to other engagements anyways nima Thanks so much for your time today. And uh, sorry, I have to cut you off here. No worries, Chris. Uh, nice to uh, talk to you and hear your voice. Uh, finally, we have been in touch through uh, Messenger for quite a while. And thank you for being with me. Okay. Chodafes. Yeah, Chodafes, Chris. I hope you enjoyed the first part of this two-part series with Nima Khalhali. I decided to make it into two parts just because we actually spent about two hours talking and I don't want to cut out so much that it takes away from the value that you would gain from listening to the whole thing. So part one was focused purely on Europe and part two will be just about North Africa. So I hope that's uh, agreeable to everybody out there, all the listeners, and I hope you enjoy it. Nima, thank you for your time. Really do appreciate it. Sorry we had to cut you off. So... Thank you for listening and keep on peddling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca 
or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.